For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The state Supreme Court rules part of an eight-year-old tort reform law as unconstitutional. The section declared illegal puts a $350,000 cap on pain and suffering. The original measure was passed in 2011 and signed by then-Governor Mary Fallon. Neva, Republicans are fairly upset by this ruling. Uh, absolutely, and I think uh, justifiably so. I mean, Justice Edmondson wrote a scathing dissent uh, uh, that Justice Winchester also went along with. And basically, I mean, this not only undermines the powers of the legislative branch, but it also, when you look at it from, the, from a business standpoint, and this is kind of the business versus the workers' comp lawyers' uh, fight uh, overall, is that it really does it really does uh, point to a very activist jury uh, uh, judiciary and I think that we see in this uh, in this decision the likelihood that uh, that we'll we'll see some other things roll out as a result of it so I think I think this is not over I think the legislative uh, folks will weigh back in on it and uh, you know the give and take on uh, the other side I mean they certainly have their arguments but from the business standpoint it is very disappointing very disturbing and certainly is very anti-business and uh, uh, presents a climate that it's very difficult for the state to go out and promote itself as uh, being uh, business friendly and a good environment to recruit and bring industry and business to the state of Oklahoma. Ryan, if it's anti-business, I'd say that it's anti-bad businesses. You know, what I don't want is to recruit businesses to the state of Oklahoma that feel like they're coming here for the sole purpose that they can hurt people and have a cap on their amount of liability. You know, so just you know to back up and look at where how we got here. You know, so back in 2011, there was this tort reform bill that was passed, and what they did in that bill is they put this cap of $350,000 on uh, non-economic damages. Well, when they put that cap on, they couldn't do it for people that had died because in the state constitution, in the Oklahoma constitution, there's a prohibition on any caps on non-economic damages. That's you know, pain and suffering and, and all of the things that you experience that you can't really put a price tag on like a hospital bill or a doctor bill. But they're, they're real damages nonetheless, and this is how we compensate them in our judicial system. The state constitution says if somebody dies, you can't put a cap on it. So they are, they were limited in the legislature to only putting a cap on people that were injured but didn't die. Well, what the Supreme Court said was that that was a special law. In Oklahoma, we have this very important part of our constitution that goes back to almost 100 years ago that says that if you have a law, it has to be a law of general applicability. It has to apply to everyone, so living or dead victims in this case, unless there's a really good reason otherwise. And here there just wasn't, and the Supreme Court recognized that, and they said this cap has to go. It's arbitrary, and it violates the special law prohibition on the state constitution. And even this is, it took a while for this. This is this is part of that massive tort reform legislation that was done nine uh, eight years ago that we all talked about it was it was a big deal back then but but now all of a sudden uh, it's, it's been wheedled away uh, over the past eight years and that's right and I think it, it's a little bit ironic and probably cynics would uh, raise some eyebrows and and look at uh, the timing of this I mean Governor Stitt uh, signed the judicial redistricting bill uh, uh, this uh, this week which basically changes the changes the uh, uh, the the judicial lines to congressional district lines and four at-large seats, something that many have advocated for for a long time, Um, and certainly that the judiciary was uh, overall uh, fairly openly opposed to. And so I think that raises some questions. I think it also opens the door to the possibility, uh, whether it happens or not this legislative session, that we may see some state questions come out of this, where they go, where the legislature decides to take some of these issues back to to a vote of the people and uh, try uh, uh, try to kind of reset the 
the mark on this. If they do that, there are a lot of other issues that potentially could come out. The Judicial Nominating Commission has been a point of contention on both sides. Uh, So the spillover effect uh, could be on many points. So I think I think that this has kind of opened the door, not just to one, you know, one ruling by the Supreme Court, but a lot of questions that really becomes the point of, uh, you know, really this back and forth business and industry versus the worker workers comp lawyers. Well, and I'd say this is, you know, this doesn't deal with uh, just to be clear, because there was some uh, press that came out of the state Senate about how this dealt with workers' comp issues. This is a straight-up civil litigation. You know, so this is in district court. It's outside of the workers' compensation system. You know, what we're talking about here, and the trial lawyers' lobby, you know, for years now has been kind of a shell of what it used to be. I mean, not, not to say that the folks out there lobbying on their behalf haven't been you know, great at doing their job, but after tort reform was passed in 2011, a lot of trial lawyers just said, well, this is the new normal, and they kind of withdrew from the political sphere. I think that we're going to see some greater engagement from them moving forward. I also think that if we see state questions, it would repeal special law, the special laws provision of the state constitution. That opens up a whole can of worms that folks that may, may think that they're just dealing with this one issue, but would deal with a lot of others. And I think that the court probably... Uh, most likely wasn't really looking at uh, the the redistricting deal that just w- w- passed. But I also think that you know they can't just pass, they can't just put decisions out there and worry about well, is this going to be the one that creates the state question that reforms the judiciary in a way that we don't like? Well, and I think the other thing is you have judicial reformers that have argued other points, such as that the Supreme Court uh, should be elected, or at least that there should be term and age limits. So there are a lot of other there are a lot of other potential uh, uh, issues that come could very well come to the forefront right now as a result of this particular ruling. Supporters of expanding Medicaid file an initiative petition to put it before voters in 2020. This comes as concern is growing that the legislature isn't going to do it. Ryan, because of high voter turnout last year, the group has to collect 178,000 signatures, which is a high bar to hit. It's a high bar to hit. In Oklahoma, if there's a big problem with our initiative petition process in the state of Oklahoma, it's not necessarily that high threshold of numbers. It's the limited time that you have to collect it. So 170,000 plus signatures, you can get that for something that is this popular. I believe that there are over 200,000 Oklahomans who would be willing to sign something like this. But doing it in a 90-day time period... That's the real crunch. And they're doing that so, so that it would go into the Constitution so that we wouldn't see a situation that we've seen with uh, state questions in the last several years where it passes at the ballot box, it goes into the statute, and then the lawmakers that come into the that next legislative session following the election, if it's just in statute, they could amend that right then and there. And so they could totally undo it. So you have to put it in the Constitution to protect it. I think that this is uh, really some effort to try to get some pressure on the legislature to pass this. But if you begin to look at the the rally and the people that are there, I think that pressure is not the primary reason that this is happening. They just believe that this is the only way that it's going to happen because the legislature has had years to do something about it. And even a couple of years where you've seen some Republican interest and there's just it's just gone nowhere. We're leaving hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. Neva. Well, it's interesting because the Republicans have actually been working in earnest. The member, members of the House, the Senate, the governor's staff, I mean, all have said that they want to bring something forward, uh, but they want to make sure that, the, that they have the details worked out. And Senator McCourtney, who's been one of the champions of trying to move this whole debate and conversation and a bill through the process, uh, the Senate plan that's out there that has emerged would actually access a million, uh, 1.2 billion uh, from the federal government, uh, with Oklahoma only paying about 140 million when it was fully implemented over three to five years. A much different scenario than the original, we get 900, uh, we get 900 uh, uh, 
million million from Mm -hmm. the uh, uh, from the feds and we pay 100 million and of course a lot of the opposition to that was you know and one of the big debate points still is if we set this in motion uh, the feds say they'll make good on their part but will they forever and if they don't then we're left holding the bigger bag in terms of having to having to pay out a a much larger sum than what was initially uh, initially talked about so I think that there is an earnest discussion to try to deal with this matter I don't think it's a situation like it sometimes is sometimes as demagogue that the Republicans just absolutely summarily want to dismiss this and don't want anything uh, in terms of, uh, of being able to access more dollars for health care, more and more access to deal with uh, funding for the rural hospitals for mental health. I mean, all of these issues. I mean, they're clearly not going to go away, and Republicans have it's on their watch. So I think we're going to see a very deliberative effort to try to make some make some progress. And there's still the bill that basically expands insure Oklahoma that was, I mean, has actually support from both sides. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the problem for Republicans moving into the 2020 election cycle with this on the ballot is they've had control of the legislature, both chambers of the legislature and the governor's office now, uh, ever since the affordable care act passed. And, uh, since that time, they, they haven't been able to move the needle on getting, uh, getting Medicaid exp- or ever since Medicaid expansion became an issue, at least in, uh, in the post affordable care act world. So, They've had the ability to do this, and we do see some increased political will among Republicans in the legislature to do this. You know, Governor Stitt himself has said that he's open to some ideas of doing it. I think that the health care authority audit is kind of a pretense to give him the excuse to come in or the political power to come in and say that this is what he wants to do. But all of that's happening at a, an incredibly slow pace. You know, there are thousands of Oklahomans that are left without insurance. And then rural communities in particular are seeing hospitals either closing or on the threat, on the brink of closure. This is the way that we save those hospitals. And this is the way that we save rural health care in the state of Oklahoma. And we just simply can't wait any much any longer. And so the ballot question is there as a backstop. If the legislature does something before then, I think most people, including the supporters of this, would be happy. And if this is a ballot question, I think the interesting thing that occurred earlier this week is the governor weighed in and basically said he would actively discourage Oklahomans from voting for Medicaid e- expansion if, if the question goes to the voters uh, next year on the 2020 general election. So, I mean, to have the governor uh, uh, weighing in and, and taking that point of view this early I mean, I think that is significant. So, uh, but by the same token, he has made the point, as you say, Ryan, I mean, let's have the discussion. I mean, let's figure out, is there a way to do this? But it's not going to be the carte blanche approach of just, we're going to hand out a bunch of money. There there are going to be strings attached. And I think that's, you know, when, when the rub comes is when there's this, uh, uh, this very specific idea that there's going to be work or training requirements for recipients and some of the things that Republicans are adamant about being attached uh, uh, to any language that moves forward. Those are the things that we need to uh, see where, you know, kind of see where that goes from here. Governor Stitt reaches the 100-day mark in his administration while it's only the beginning of his four years in office. Neva, what do you think of the Tulsa businessman's time so far in office? I think overall it's it, it, it's a strong 100-day start. And I think uh, as many uh, told the governor, and I think in his uh, kind of 100-day report that he put out, uh, many people said that uh, told him that he would be frustrated at how slow uh, the wheels of government turn. And he has, I think, experienced that. But in the same vein, he is uh, also 
also pushed pushed the needle uh, very strongly. He he set forth some agenda items and uh, has had some success on some of those. Others uh, clearly are attached in in some measure to the budget negotiations mm-hmm. that are still ongoing on the education uh, measures and some of the others. But in terms of moving for agency reform, for criminal justice uh, reform, for government transparency, those things. I mean, I think we see significant uh, you know initial movement in the first hundred days. I think uh, things like taxes. He's clearly, uh, there's nothing come to his desk, nothing moving through the legislature in terms of raising taxes. That was a that was a pledge that he made out on the campaign trail. So I think all in all, I mean, for, uh, for setting kind of the first marker, I think he's established a leadership style. Uh, much of the time early on has been set, uh, has been set really um, putting together his team, the people he wanted on the cabinet, the people he wanted as agency heads, the people in his uh, on his office staff. So I think now we see where the springboard goes once we get past this next month in the legislature, uh, what he does on through the end of this year and what markers he sets to be the uh, kind of the guidepost for the first year in office. Right. I mean, he's, he has reasserted, if, if not enlarged, the powers of the executive beyond that which any governor in modern Oklahoma history has enjoyed. I mean, and he's done that primarily just through his tone. He's been an active governor. He's been uh, out in the legislature working with legislators whenever there's a, a problem. You know, my, my sense is that he's the guy that says, well, I don't want to send a staff person there. I'm going to go to the room myself and I'm going to sit down in these meetings. And I mean, that kind of uh, active engagement on the part of the executive, I think, is something we haven't certainly seen for the last eight years at least. And, um, you know, that's really changed the, the way that the governor's office works in that Capitol building. Um, and, you know, I would say that Neva's right. A lot of the things that we're looking at, education funding, healthcare funding, proof is going to be in the pudding there. You know, 100 days is not long enough. We've got to get through these budget negotiations. And let's see where he's able to be at the end of this legislative session in terms of, you know, teacher, teacher pay raises, uh, 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 classroom funding, healthcare funding. Uh, criminal justice reform. You know, the I think the biggest thing that he's done are the three appointees that he made to the Pardon and Parole Board. I mean, those really just changed the game of the Pardon and Parole Board. Uh, Adam Luck, in particular, uh, somebody that's out there actively engaging uh, the the Pardon and Parole Board's powers to make sure that the right people are out of prison and that the right people stay in prison. And you know, I uh, I think that those those appointments are to be applauded. The rest of criminal justice reform. You know, his his legislative or his executive powers, uh, I think, really need to come into play here because we've got some really big bills that, as we're taping right now, are being heard in the legislature on a deadline week that are likely to go to a conference committee. And if the governor would weigh in on those bills and put his support behind him, I think that he can help get him across the finish line and in a way that actually does something, not just passing a bill that says that sounds good, but actually has some meat to it. It certainly certainly does help that he has a Republican majority. Absolutely a Republican majority, but it also helps that the governor has reached across and has done a, I think, a very good job early on of developing relationships, getting to know the Democrats uh, in both the House and the Senate, so that it is not just a a, a very hyper-partisan atmosphere, but rather one where there is a, a very uh, very diligent, very authentic effort to try to bring parties together where they can. I mean, it's not that he's going to set aside his uh, his objectives, his goals, or his uh, own uh, conservative viewpoints, but he is willing to listen and and uh, uh, is open to new ideas. And so I think that's ca- this kind of fresh atmosphere out there has uh, been very significant in how we see this le- this legislature really operating. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see 
as a result of these budget negotiations, which the governor has been hands-on involved in, which is very unusual, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not uh, at the end of it, uh, uh, who, f- who feels like they've come out with uh, the better end of the bargain. The state house passes a bill outlawing free speech zones on college campuses. Senate Bill 361 is heading to the governor's desk after getting through the house largely along party lines 74 to 26. Supporters say the measure keeps students and administrators from infringing on the rights of people with opposing views. But opponents argue the measure's effect is to encourage what the, quote, politics of confrontation. Ryan, what do you think about this bill? I think that the bill is unnecessary at best. I think it's problematic at worst. I think that it could create confusion uh, on college campuses where the First Amendment gives us very clear guidelines as to what is and isn't permitted on college campuses. This bill doesn't change that. And as much as legislators, I think, sometimes feel like they need to help the Constitution, the Constitution doesn't need any help. The First Amendment doesn't need an endorsement from the Oklahoma legislature to have some effect on college campuses at public universities across the state of Oklahoma. It's doing just fine. It's pretty healthy. And what this bill does, uh, I think, is actually endangers uh, those long-held First Amendment principles because the, the First Amendment is put in the Constitution just for the very purpose of it being out of the reach of legislative majorities. It's there because it's enshrined as a foundation, foundational principle of the United States Constitution. And to say that the legislature now needs to come and give these free speech rights, well, if the legislature gives it, the legislature can take it away. That's unlike the First Amendment. And then some of the other confusing parts of this that you know uh, seem to be redundant and then create reporting requirements on behalf of the universities that are unfunded mandates, there's really no reason for doing this other than to say, hey, look, I did this deal that stood up for free speech on college campuses, but you could do that just by saying that you support the First Amendment and and maybe making a contribution to an organization like the ACLU that defends the First (laughs) Amendment all the time, but shameless plug there. Neva. Well, I think I think that what we have is a situation where while it may not be as big an issue on Oklahoma's public colleges and university campuses, it has been an issue nationally. And so I think when you look at the, the fact that in many other states, this has grown out of uh, issues where uh, c- conservatives have had uh, have had clear have faced clear discrimination on college campuses, not being able to have organizations exist, not being able to have speakers come on campus because they had a point of view that quote, offended uh, some in the uh, either the uh, uh, administration, the, the uh, academic establishment, or among the student body themselves. And so I think this is a clear effort to make sure that there's no confusion. It's not about creating confusion. It's about making sure that it is clear what First Amendment rights really stand for. And they stand for a liberal, uh, a liberal point of view being able to be advocated on a college campus, as well as a conservative point of view. Oklahoma's only Democratic congressman is getting a challenge from the Republican Party. State Senator Stephanie Bice of Oklahoma City is throwing her hat in the ring for Demo- District 5 in the 2020 election, going up against Kendra Horn. Neva, do you think this helps the GOP take back the seat next year? Oh, absolutely. I think this is the number one primary focus for Republicans in 2020 in Oklahoma is to take back uh, this congressional seat. And I think it will be it will be a congressional election that will have uh, national implications. It's one of the top 55 on the National Republican Congressional Committee uh, uh 
scale right now. It's something that I think when you look at it, Republicans have every reason to believe that there's an opportunity to take the seat back from a freshman uh, incumbent. Uh, when you look at the 2018, uh, the Cook Partisan Voter Index uh, back in 2018 showed this seat as a plus 10, meaning that uh, this district uh, in previous, the two previous presidential elections, that the district results were 10 percent um, higher than the national average for Republican voting. So it's clearly still a Republican seat. It's trending, uh, as we've all talked about, given the numbers and the change in, in the district itself. But in a presidential year uh, and looking at, uh, at a campaign where you have a Republican, a very strong Republican majority uh, helping to, you know, lend every effort to this, I think that it will be a very high spending, a very, um, uh, a very strong campaign on both sides. But I think when it gets right down to it, Republicans uh, should be very optimistic at the prospects of taking back the seat. Ryan, yeah, I think Senator Bice is a strong contender, but let's, I, I was a little disappointed that Rather than showing up and talking about the issues that one Kendra Horn this seat, healthcare in particular, and, and education and infrastructure spending, you know, the real bread and butter issues in, in the 5th District that people really care about, she started off by using this tired old Republican playbook now of calling uh, Kendra Horn a far left that she was uh, tied to the far left socialist agenda. Now, I know, I know Congresswoman <laughs> Horn and I'm, I consider her a friend and, and, you know, I support her and I uh, will support her in the future. Um, but man, I just don't know this far left socialist Congresswoman <laughs> Horn and, and kind of, I, I wish that she were more liberal and more socialist uh, and, 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 and her approach to, to governing. But what we've seen is somebody who, you know, she's a member of the Blue Dog Caucus, which, you know, frankly, personally, I was disappointed that she joined mm-hmm. as this conservative group of Democrats in the in the House. She's really been somebody who um, hasn't got caught up in the the partisan and uh, the hyper partisan wins that we often see on in the national political arena. She has stayed away from that. And now she's going to have to uh, work really hard to overcome just generic labels, because as a freshman member, a lot of people aren't going to know her personally. And that you're going to have that generic label of uh, label of far left socialist liberal democratic candidate for Congress, she's going to have to overcome that because there are a lot of people that are going to buy that. And, and you know, if I, you know, probably if, if it sticks, I may support her even more. <laughs> well, but, but also when you, when you say that she hasn't really uh, uh, tried to make this a uh, uh, kind of this strong ideological partisan divide, I mean, her own spokesman for her campaign after uh, Senator Bias announced her candidacy said that the Republicans basically were jumping over each other to, uh, to private Social Security to take away the gains that have been seen in health care, uh, uh, which included protections on pre-existing conditions. I mean, all of this red herring, I mean, this red meat throwing out there that uh, uh, really ramps it up for, for their base as well. So I think what we're going to see is uh, a very aggressive campaign on both sides. And, and let's and let's also take into account that this is just the first Republican right. to announce. There's an expectation that there will be, you know, uh, several more that will announce, uh, whether it's in the coming weeks or months. So uh, there's still a long time till uh, filing next April. But I think we will have a, a strong Republican field of candidates. And out of that, uh, Republicans will uh, uh, make a decision on who's best position to take on Kendra Horn in the general election next year. And, but sometimes and, being the first is also a better. Well, and I think that there's a real effort on behalf of, of Republicans that to clear the field here, you know, the, you know, to have a, uh, a really solid candidate. And I think Senator Bice, you know, fits that bill, a really solid candidate that's out there raising money and focusing on Kendra Horn coming up in the general election. I would say that the, you know, when, when you look at what Ward Curtin from uh, Kendra Horn's campaign said, you know, the difference is, is that 
those are things that Republicans have actually been trying to do in Congress. And the the attack against uh, Congresswoman Horn that she's this far left socialist, boy, that just doesn't hold any water. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.